Hey, I'm Johnny King, and I'm a life enthusiast, growth mentor, and lifestyle fulfillment coach, which means I've dedicated my entire life to helping anyone who feels like they're not making the most of their potential to level up and live the extraordinary life of their dreams. You deserve to be the king or queen of your own kingdom, and I'll be alongside to help you be the best version that you can be. I'm psyched that you're here, so let's get to it. What's going on, everybody? It's Johnny King with another amazing episode of The Johnny King Show, and I am so privileged to have with us today Dr. Robert Glover, who is the author of the book that I have referred to many times on the podcast, which is No More Mr. Nice Guy, A Proven Plan for Getting What You Want in Love, Sex, and Life. Welcome, Dr. Glover. Thank you. Johnny, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Absolutely. You're tuning in from Mexico, which we were talking about is so uh so cold during this time of year <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 i'm I'm down in puerto vallarta now this is this is the hot humid time of year this is a good time to take a trip away from puerto vallarta yeah, yeah the rest the, you know another uh, you know eight to ten months out of the year is great but uh yes, yes absolutely it's it's the time of year that like i said with my father and anyone else that's living in you know the closer to the to the uh, equator is wondering why they don't uh head off to michigan or Maine or something like that. There so, you go. Yeah, I find I find excuses to get up to Seattle to go visit my mother. Absolutely. Oh, it's, so, it's such a beautiful time to get up there too. But thank you for being here. I'm I'm so excited to have you. Just because, like I said, I've talked to men at large. I've been part of No More Mr. Nice Guy groups here in town in Denver, Colorado. Um, a big part of my ahas have come as a result of understanding what you kind of have termed as the and correct me if I'm wrong, the, the nice guy syndrome. Sure. Right. And, and explain to those, those men that might be listening who have no idea, haven't read your book yet. What is the, the nice guy syndrome and what's that all about? Sure. Yeah. A nice guy is basically uh, a guy and, and this can apply to women as well, but I think we're targeting men right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a guy who doesn't believe he's okay just as he is. And so he, he believes two things. One, he has to become what he thinks other people want him to be in order to be liked and loved and get his needs met. So he's very chameleon-like. And he also believes he has to hide anything about him that might get a negative reaction from other people. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that, that's just kind of a nutshell story. There's so many different flavors of, of nice guys. But, but mostly, yeah, they're trying to become something different and trying to hide something about themselves and think that's the only way that they can get love, get a relationship, succeed, have a good life. And uh, as I'm sure you and I will talk about, there's lots of flaws to, to, to the, the paradigm, the roadmap. Totally, totally. And I've made a lot of those flaws, unfortunately, or uh, <laughs> that sort of thing. But I would love to, to maybe hear from you too real quick, just because I think it's fascinating, um, just the evolution of the nice guy. Like, when did it originate, as you kind of talked about in the beginning of your mm. book? Because um, to me, it just makes so much sense. I'm like, ah, oh, yes, this is amazing. Well, you know, probably there's always been nice guys. You know, there's yes. this kind of always, the, you know, the, the milk toast kind of guy, the, the guy that, yes, dear, whatever you want, dear kind of guy. Um, I, I, I think it really blew up. Um, my generation, I'm, I'm in my mid-60s now, and my generation might have been the first kind of like, wow, there's a bunch of guys like that out there. And, you know, the baby boomers maybe trying to be different from our fathers who are uh, detached, disconnected, uh, not connected to their feelings, not connected to their families, um, maybe a little self-absorbed, still that patriarchal mindset that, you know, my wife and kids are here to serve me. And, and so I think a lot of guys in my generation grew up and maybe were even influenced by our mothers who, as my mother said, I'm raising my boys to be different than their father. Uh, she later apologized for that, bless her soul. Um, but yeah, I was trained to be different from my father who was, we all perceived as being kind of narcissistic and you know, selfish and the world revolved around him. Uh, other influences, I think Vietnam might have had a big influence where uh, a lot of people decided, you know, to just drop out the whole Vietnam era of, of you know, let's make uh, love, not war. Uh, just kind of a softer uh, feel for men. Men started wearing tie-dye, growing their hair out. Again, being different from their fathers. Uh, another big piece is that for most men, probably most men for the last 
I don't know how many years, 60, 70 years. Most of us were, were highly influenced by women at a young age. Uh, our mothers, preschool, elementary school. I had one male elementary school teacher, so I didn't have a male teacher until I was in, uh, second one until I was in junior high. So most little boys, um, to get from second to third grade, not only do we have to learn our reading, writing, and arithmetic, but we gotta learn how to please a woman. And then I grew up during the 60s with the radical feminism that, you know, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle, an erection's a sign of aggression, um, the best man for the job is a woman, all just, you know, a lot of negativity towards men. And I thought, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that jerk. I don't want to be selfish like my father. I don't want to be that uncaring man that just objectifies women. Um, so th those all strongly influenced me. Now, if you kind of fast forward, uh, a generation or two. Now, uh, many, many boys are being raised in single parent homes. Uh, fathers are absent, unavailable, don't have a, a good solid father figure of any sort. Again, primarily raised by women. Most have been uh, raised with kind of the aftermath of that 60s feminism of, um, you know, just shunning anything that smacks of patriarchal, patriarchy or toxic masculinity and just going to the other, other side, other extreme. And then probably the internet has fueled a lot of that as well. So I, I see that this whole nice guy thing is something that has multiplied even since I wrote the book, you know, 20 plus years ago. Yeah, and, and I also found interesting too how you talked about the Industrial Revolution playing a role in that men were often teaching little boys how to be men out in the fields, you know, working their plot of land in whatever case. And then once yeah. machines came and replaced men and men had to go into cities to, to find work, they left their boys to be raised by the women of the village or the women yeah. of the... Yeah, they're, they're mothers. And, and yeah, that was a big transition that, that through most of human history, um, boys have been mentored and taught about what it means to be masculine, for good or for bad, by the men of the tribe, the men, you know, their, their dads or grandfathers or uncles. And uh, they were mentored, they, they were taught, they were uh, initiated. And, and that has not existed for, for quite some time now. So little boys have to grow into adolescence and then adult malehood with really no kind of direction whatsoever. Again, other than nowadays, whatever you get on the internet or television. Right. And that's about it. That fits right in line with my story that I've talked about in my, you know, I have a failed marriage on, on my record as well, just because I had no idea what it meant to be uh, a proper, a proper, what I don't even know what the term is, just a, an exceptional husband. Well, how to, how, how, to, how to show up, how to be conscious, how to set the tone and lead, how to, how to hold on to yourself and uh, not give you away to, to, to try to please. I mean, a lot, there's a lot of things that can get mixed into it, all the way from yes. addictions to hiding and secrecy. And I have great empathy for my first two ex-wives, what, what they both had to put up with from me. Um, both of them were, were completely different contexts. But, yeah, I, I had no idea. Um, as you said, how, how to show up, and I don't really like the term failed marriages because, you know, there's two people involved. There's not you know, one person that failed, and sure. I actually have the opinion that, that uh, monogamous pair-bonded lifelong relationships are not supposed to work. Uh, mm -hmm. They're not wired into our DNA. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that people stay together a long time, well, their marriage worked. Well, I, I've been a marriage therapist for over 30 years. There's a lot of people that stay together and things aren't working. Um, but yeah, no one teaches us how to do that. How, no one teaches us, number one, that everything we expect from a relationship is probably based on listening to too many pop songs, watching too many movies and, and too many TV shows because those kind of relationships aren't real. They don't exist. Um, but we go into relationship thinking, oh, because uh, I'm attracted to this person, or because, you know, I like being with them, because I think they're great or whatever, we're going to live together forever and it's going to go just, it, it'll, it'll be even better than it is now because we'll get to see each other every day and sleep together every night. And then you get a little while into that and going, 
damn, I need to find a way to get away from this person a little bit. It'd be nice to sleep in my own bed once in a while. Um, so we, we, no one teaches us how to get into relationship and, and maintain ourselves, have healthy differentiation, uh, to set the tone and lead, to, to create what I call cooperative reciprocal relationships where we have a lot of resources to help us get our needs met, not just as one person we got into relationship with. And you're teaching a lot of this now, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's that's that's, years, right? that's well doing it for longer than that now. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, that that is what I do. I, basically, you know, I, my doctorate, my background is in marriage and family therapy. Mm -hmm. So I I, I did uh, I had a private practice for 25 plus years, starting out primarily working with couples and individuals. Right. Once I started working with nice guys, as I was doing my own nice guy recovery work, and I saw a lot of other guys coming to, to therapy with me with their wife or girlfriend, who were saying the same things I've been saying for years. I'm a nice guy. I treat her better than her ex. I'm raising her kids. I do everything she wants. I try to make her happy. She's never happy. She's always in a bad mood. She never wants to have sex anymore. When's it going to be my turn? And I thought, these guys are just like me. So that's when, about 25 years ago, I started my first No More Mr. Nice Guy men's group. And when I... Um, kind of wrapped up private practice about six, seven years ago about in the Seattle area. I was leading five groups a week of men at that time, no more Mr. Nice Guy groups. Um, so yeah, this is, is a, lot of, a lot of men out there that are searching for answers of how do I be happy? How do I get love? How, how, how do I get consistent, predictable, enjoyable sex? Uh, mm -hmm. how, how do I live with purpose and passion? How do I live up to my potential? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm thrilled that there really is a worldwide men's movement happening. You know, people like you, there's, it's just blossoming around the world of, of men's coaches, men's groups, men's programs, and there's lots of different doors into this where people might come into it, men might come in it through martial arts or a divorce recovery group or uh, some sort of consciousness type program or yoga or pickup. I mean, there's so many ways that men are out there looking for tribe and they're looking for answers and they're looking for initiation. And so, um, you know, so the fact that, you know, you were mentioning that for X number of years you worked with women, but now for the last couple of years you've worked with men. And I've worked almost exclusively with men for 20 years now. And it is so fulfilling and men are so hungry, looking for answers, looking for, you know, they've been told all their lives what not to be. And um, they, they don't have a real good idea of, of what to be. And that's what I've, I've thought that too. And, you know, again, Tony Robbins, but where your focus goes, your energy flows. I think Jim Rohn even said it before that. But um, I, was, I was the, I guess, the result of that because I knew very much of what I didn't want to become like my father. Sure. You know, which was just my resentment towards him because he was working so much that I hardly saw him as a, as a little boy. Um, and I never wanted to be that. I wanted to be that active, participating father and husband but when i found myself married i really was so lost so yeah, yeah. it was it was the the end of that relationship 10 years ago that really kind of became the, the catalyst towards growth and that's i think well a lot of guys kind of question like where do i start and maybe that you just answered it which is like man you could start in martial arts or yeah. therapy or uh, any type of rites of passage you know initiations and things like that right there's no, no right or wrong and, place to no start. no and I've, i find that most men um at least uh, you know that i that come to me for whatever reason you know take a class with me or do workshops with me or back when i was doing groups they usually come at some stage of life where something just isn't working well for them most common is relationship it might be a guy that just you know can't get a date, doesn't know how to talk to women, you know, is a virgin or has only had sex once or twice in his life. And, and you know, they want to change that. Or uh, as you mentioned, it, when you, a relationship ended. So a lot of guys, when it's about to end or it is, it is ending or just ended, a lot of guys come seek me out. Um, for other guys, it might be more about their work and career where they, they know they, they could be accomplishing so much more, but they find themselves procrastinating or avoiding launching that business they've always wanted to launch or watching other people at work pass them up that they know that the, these other people aren't any more qualified than them. 
And so it's usually when we're feeling stuck or in a repetitive place or going through a painful place that we go looking for some answers. And, and luckily there's, there's, there's a lot, it's a lot easier to find them now. When, when I started my nice guy recovery 25 plus years ago, um, luckily there was some stuff out there. There's Robert Bly, Iron John, kind of the whole mythopoetic movement. And, you know, I went out and attended a few programs where you went out in the woods and beat a drum and held the talking stick and said ho and stuff like that. And, and that was a good start, but that was really about all there was. And uh, I'm, just, I'm just thrilled that nowadays there, you, you don't have to go very far to find a man's coach, a man's program, uh, and men doing good work. And uh, I mean, that excites me so much. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's is pretty cool given the the opportunity. And yet, sometimes with that too, men are it's almost like choice fatigue. They don't know where to be. Well, that, that that can happen. That can happen. And yeah, that's a good problem to have. That that that'd be like saying I've got I've got five amazing women all wanting to get with me. What do I do? <laughs> you know? Hey, I, I've got I've got five choices in Denver of ways I can go connect deeply with men. Which one do I pick? That's a good problem. Yeah, and like you said, there's no right or wrong answer. I guess it just depends on the individual, or or am I wrong about that? Is what if someone comes to you, where do you begin? If someone's where I was ten years ago, or just feeling totally stuck in that pattern of kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of low and low, you know, self-esteem and everything else, where do they go, or what do they do to at least start moving the ball down the field a little bit? Well, that's a good question, and of course, that's different for everybody, but the what where I start, especially with men, is that again going back to what you and I were talking about. So many of us lack tribe. Uh, you know, I hear so many nice guys, especially say, "Well, I don't have guy friends because all guys want to do is watch sports and drink beer and objectify right. women." Right. And I go, "Men do that, and there's nothing wrong with those things." But there's a lot of men out there who are much deeper than that. And that's an excuse a lot of nice guys will use because they're more comfortable with women. You and I were chatting just a little bit about that. We like that validation we get from being the good guy with women. We listen to them talk about their problems. We do things for them. We volunteer to help their sister move. We're available whenever they want. And oh, you're such a nice guy. And, and, um, and so for a lot of us who were, were raised primarily by our mothers, by women, we are alienated from men. We're disconnected from men. And so I, I tell men, I think the first place we need to start, I tell, I've been telling guys, I say this in the book, don't try to do this alone. Too many men were the lone wolf, I'll just do it myself, I'll do my work myself. We can't, right? We need the sharpening of a group of men, we need the support of a group of men, we need the accountability of a group of men. We need a safe place to just go open up and be ourselves and let go of our, our toxic shame, our self-limiting beliefs, get more accurate feedback about who we are, and just have that depth of connection. And honestly, you know, since I've been working with men, and I've got a coach, I'm in a men's program, I've been in it for three years now, uh, I can honestly say I feel more love from men in my life than I've ever felt from the women in my life, and I'm on my third marriage. And, and that's where I tell men to start. Start building a tribe. Find a tribe and go start opening up. Be honest. Be you. Reveal yourself. Share. Take risks. Be vulnerable. And that just, I mean, men can find a place to do that. I started in a 12-step program. Um, and it was such a great thing to be in this 12-step program. And it was all men. And I could just go every week and just start telling everything I'd never told anybody before. And nobody freaked out. Nobody thought I was, you know, a freak or a creep. Or they said, thank you for sharing, Robert. You know, that was it, you know. And then I'd listen to their stories. And I didn't think there was anything wrong with them, even though they, they all, you know. When we all tell our stories, we think, oh, no, I'm terrible. Everybody's going to see how terrible I am. And nobody, nobody thinks you're terrible. Um, so, yeah, that's where I'd say start, is you've got to have a tribe, you have to have a place to start being vulnerable, start releasing toxic shame, and start getting a more accurate feedback about who you are, yeah. rather than these beliefs we've been packing around, maybe since we were little boys or babies even. No doubt, no doubt. Talk about toxic shame. I mean, I've, I've talked about it a fair amount, and of course I've done, you know, read on various authors and that sort of thing. I love what Brene Brown says about shame, but what, what, how does it look like for, in your practice and your work with men in terms of toxicity it, around shame? It's, it's core. And I, I talk a lot about it in No More Mr. Nice Guy. And, and, and in a way that's a little bit phenomenal. I, 
I remember early in my second marriage, my, my second wife was really into self-help, and she, she really is what prodded me into go work on me. In fact, she said, I'm going to leave you if you don't go work on you. And I was, you know, about three years into our, our marriage, and, um, and she said, everybody thinks you're such a nice guy, but, but you're not. You're really hurtful to me, and you're passive-aggressive. And I, I had a PhD in marriage and family therapy, and I'm not sure I even knew what passive-aggressiveness was. And I remember she was reading John Bradshaw books, like Healing the Shame That Binds You. And I remember she's in bed reading, and she goes, here, listen to this, listen to this. This describes you. And she'd read this parts about shame to me, and honestly, I'm not a dumb guy. And like I said, I had a PhD at 29, and I'm listening going, I'm not sure I even understand the concept, let alone how it applies to me. And I thought, but I can kind of see how it applies to you because you, you think you're worthless. I don't think I'm worthless, but you tell me all the time how bad you are. I don't, I don't think I'm bad. Um, and as I began to do my work, and like say in that 12-step group, and when I realized there were so many things about me I never let anybody see, you know, thoughts, feelings, mistakes, anything about me, I always kept it really closely guarded. What I came to realize is, is, is uh, a nice guy, I'd kept all my shame in a pretty locked down, airtight compartment inside. And thought, I thought, by, oh, I do everything so good because I treat people well and I give to people and, you know, I'm not like my dad and I'm not like those jerks uh, that I'm, people should love me and like me. Um, but that was all coming from a place that I didn't, th I didn't think I was okay on the inside. And where the toxic shame really comes from is, really, it starts when we're babies, that a baby by nature is grandiose and narcissistic and the center of their universe. At an emotional level, this is precognitive, a baby believes they are the cause of everything that happens to them. So anytime they have any kind of uncomfortable experience, uh, they're hungry and don't get fed right away, they're cold and don't get held, they're, they're lonely and don't get held, they're dirty and don't get changed, or yeah. maybe, you know, none of us had perfect parents, so, you know, maybe there's turmoil in your family, maybe there's abuse, maybe there's addiction. All of these things get internalized inaccurately by babies and children at an emotional level, not a cognitive level, at an emotional level into a very primitive part of our brain called the amygdala, stores up emotional memory about who we are and what the world is like. And it's, it's, it's completely inaccurate because it comes from that narcissistic, grandiose place of an infant. But it, it gets stored up in the emotional part of our brain and now we carry that with us into childhood, adolescence, adulthood, and the amygdala is wired into every other part of our brain. So how we think about ourselves, how we think about the world, how we think about the opposite sex, about sex, about relationship, about success, all of those things are driven by that emotional memory stored up in that primitive part of our brain. And for, for many, many, many people, that, that's in the form of toxic shame. And toxic shame is, is a, a, an emotional belief, not a cognitive belief. We actually start finding cognitive things to support it. <clears throat> but it's an emotional belief that there's something wrong with me. I'm unlovable. I'm defective. I'm broken. And, and then I said, as I said, we'll go looking for things to support that emotional belief system. So a big part of, I, I believe, any therapeutic process, not just for men overcoming nice guy syndrome, but probably almost any therapeutic process, is us finding ways to become aware of and release our toxic shame. And, and as, as they often say in recovery world, that's like peeling back layers of an onion over time. And that's why I go back to, we got to find safe people in a safe place to go start revealing ourselves. Nobody reacts negatively, you know, to you know, what we've shared, and we get a more accurate feedback of who we are. We're not this terrible, unlovable, worthless, you know, blob walking the planet. And, and, that, and we can start re rewiring, re overriding our emotional operating system. And, you know, we may always pack around some of that internalized shame, but at least the more you do this work, you see it quicker. You see it easier when it starts coming up in forms of, you know, self-criticism or negativity or judgment or uh, avoidance of things. You see, you see it quicker. And then if you have a support system, you can go deal with it quicker. Mm -hmm. I think you bring up a good point, though, and, I, and something that a lot of guys ask. I mean, I've been having a lot of conversations about... Um, you know, just racism and race and that sort of thing with a bunch of my, my black friends here in town. And a lot of them have said to 
white people such as myself who want to have that conversation, you need to go find the right person to have the conversation that, that it's a safe, you know, a, a safe landing spot to have that conversation. And so whether we're talking about race or we're talking about shame, I guess guys have asked me, well, how do I know who to trust or if they're the right person to talk to? Yeah. To well, that type and, of you know, like when it comes to the shame part, I, I, you know, some good places to start might be a coach, a therapist, a 12 step group, a men's group. It could be a minister, a priest or a rabbi. Mm -hmm. I often tell guys, it's probably not your wife, your girlfriend or a family member. Because for two reasons. Number one, we don't want to show them the worst of ourselves because we're afraid they're going to quit loving us. Mm -hmm. And our wife, girlfriend, family members have at least some emotional investment in us not changing. Even if they're telling us, I want you to change. If you do start changing, that will cause anxiety and fear in them because they don't know where that's going to lead. Mm -hmm. So people that have some degree of investment in us staying the way we are are not the best people to go reveal our deepest self to. As I said, I, I, I started, well, I'll give you an example that I share sometimes. When I was pretty early on in doing my own work, I was going to this 12-step group for sex addicts. Uh, quickly found out I wasn't a sex addict. I wasn't having enough sex to be a sex addict. But I had acted sexually inappropriately, and so it was a good venue for me to start releasing shame. I also got to working with a therapist around that same time. And I remember, this was really early on for me, and I, I had uh, a sexual impulse, and it, it was pretty dark, and it, and it scared me. I didn't act on it, but the fact that I actually even entertained this kind of dark, sexual impulse. Yeah, I mean, remember, I was a nice guy. I grew up in this fundamental Christian church. I've got two degrees in religion. I was a minister for eight years. I saw a previous lifetime, but, you know, I grew up, you know, trying to be a really good guy, a really good boy. And so I had this dark sexual impulse. And, um, and so I went to my 12-step group, you know, met like at six o'clock in the morning. And, and I shared it with these guys. And, you know, the, the only reaction I got was, thank you for sharing, Robert. So, okay, that wasn't so bad. Nobody thought I was terrible. So, and then, like an hour later, I had an appointment with my therapist. It was a woman therapist. And I went and I told her. And she just looked at me with compassion and said, well, let's explore that. Let's see what that's about for you. And we did. We just explored what might be the emotional dynamic of that piece. And then uh, I'm driving back home and I thought, wow. That went well, you know, I, I, I never would have told anybody those kinds of things, you know, six months prior to that. And I thought, you know, I probably need to go tell my wife. And um, I, I used to always tell my wife her middle name ought to be overreact because that's what she did in every situation. And she never overreacted when I told her that because she knew it was true. And I thought, even if she overreacts, has a negative reaction to what I'm going to go tell her, I'm still batting 666, and you know, as a baseball fan, I'm thinking, that's not bad, that's not bad, two for, you know, two for three. So uh, I drove home, I said, I got something to tell you, and I said, so we went back to the bedroom, I still remember this, and uh, um, we sat down, and I said, uh, I need to tell you, I, uh, I, I already talked with my 12-step group about this, I talked with my therapist about it, but I said, here's the thing, I had this sexual impulse a week or so ago, I said, it kind of scared me. And I said, so I told my 12-step group, I told my uh, therapist, and I want to tell you now that this is what the story was. And she kind of looked at me, no big reaction, and she said, um, that kind of scares me. And she said, it doesn't surprise me. And uh, I'm glad you told your 12-step group, and I'm glad you told your therapist, and I'm glad you told me. And she never mentioned it again. I'm thinking, wow, this is good stuff. But it probably would not have been a good idea to start that with her, right? Mm -hmm. To just go to her, because I would have had a lot of shame, a lot of fear of being attacked, a lot of, and, and she would have felt that, my anxiety. And, and, but by me going and doing that work with safe people first, I could then go share it with her, and she could just hear it as information and know I was addressing it. I was working on it. It wasn't getting pressed or pushed down and going to come out in some indirect you know, hurtful kind of way. And it made her feel safer. Even though it was something she wasn't thrilled to hear, it made her feel safer. So yeah, start this safe work, you know, again, whether it's a 12-step group, a men's group, a coach, a therapist. It can be a best buddy, somebody that you know, you know, sees the best in you, is not going to react. 
but start revealing everything about you that you really don't want anybody to know about you. And the men's program I'm in, that I participate in, we still do practices like that. You know, every few months, we'll just do a kind of a go around. Everybody's got like 30 seconds, 60 seconds to just unload. You know, what I don't want you to know about me, you know, and just list off five, ten things. What I don't want you to know about me, what I don't want you to know about me, whatever we might be keeping in. And after every time we do that exercise, everybody gets closer to each other. We feel more connected because we, we say, hey, I'm not alone, or he's just like me, or, oh, I said that, and nobody had a negative reaction. And now we, it lets, we can let people get closer to us and let them really know us. I love that, and I think that's it's, it's so spot on because I I do feel like vulnerability kind of begets more vulnerability. It's true it, power. It does. It does. And you know, you mentioned Brene Brown, and you know, and she's um, you know, you can't help but watch like her TED talk. I you know, I remember first time I saw it, I thought I'm in love with this woman. You know, just uh, she was just so self-effacing and and talking about being vulnerable and studying it, but yet having such a hard time being that way. Yeah. And yeah, vulnerability is welcoming to people, but we got to practice that with safe people first. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's, it's interesting because I do feel like in the men's space, and I see it on social media, whatever, there's a lot of men that are kind of championing, you know, this is how men should be, you know, in my yeah. kind of standpoint of like, ah, I don't know if there is a clear defined box that everyone should be able to fit into. And if not, maybe that's part of the problem. But I do know that in my mind growing up, I was like, I don't want to be that porn watching, you know, all the things that you mentioned earlier that, yeah. that stereotypical guys are. But then I also found myself and I've talked to a lot of other buddies who, especially in relationships, found themselves in a place where they're, you know, wanting to have an intimate relationship with with someone, in my case, various girlfriends or whatever and they just said oh, you're kind of like a, a brother to me I don't uh -huh. actually find you attractive you're kind of just that nice guy there's no yeah, that, that whole friend zone or, thing yeah, yeah. friend zone thing how, how do men even navigate through that whether they're straight or gay or everything in between how do they find that because that dynamic between the masculine and feminine I feel like needs to be there that polarity yeah well you, you you've just about asked me three questions <laughs> we could probably <laughs> go off on any one the, yeah, the, right, first, right. the first question I heard was about, you know, kind of the, you can find anything on the internet for good or for bad. So, so you know, you probably, you know, you, you might say that even white extremism and nationalism and neo-Nazism is one, one form of the new men's movement. Right. Um, is not a part that, that, that I claim. But, yeah, out there on the internet, you got a lot of people telling a lot of people, here's what it means to be fill in the blank. Right? to be successful. Well, you, you know, you got to, you know, build a website and have a click funnel and you got to affiliate and you got to, here's how you be successful. Now, there's a lot of ways to, to, to go about being successful. Um, for me, I, I, I don't like stereotypes. I don't like caricatures of like, this is a man or this isn't a man. And even, no more Mr. Nice Guy, even the nice guy, it, it, it could be easy to turn it into this meme that just either becomes a caricature, uh, a silly, dis easily dismissed caricature, or it, it could be this identity that we're like locked into. So I'm really careful about pinning really anything on, on men. And um, I, as I said, I think there's a lot of ways to come at this. I think at some point, hopefully, it leads us to being more conscious, more aware, more in the moment, more connected to ourselves, more connected to others, more embracing of every aspect of ourselves, even the parts that make us uncomfortable. But that doesn't mean saying, here's what you should be. And, and I know, because like the men's program I'm in is really is, is called an embodiment program, a men's embodiment, where, where we're embodying consciousness into our physical nervous system right. and there's a lot of things I really like about it and it's, it's kind of on the edge of, of one part of things where you know everything is about well if it's not going deeper into consciousness and embodiment you know it's, it's, it's a waste or it's frivial and, and I don't hear that in my program but I, it's, it's, it's one step away from it almost and um, 
you know, again, it's telling, well, man, if you're not like this, and I, I do get a kick out of looking at a lot of men's coaches' websites, and nowadays a lot of them look a lot alike, so they're all using the same template, but I get a kick out of if they show a man or a group of men, they, they're, they're hyper-masculine a lot of times, or a lot of times, you know, they've got to have a six-pack abs or the big hipster beard, or dreadlocks, or, you know, some mix of color. Um, it's almost like, you know, this idea of what uh, an evolved man looks like. And you and I are as white as we can be, you know. And, uh, and, and neither one of us looks much like this kind of ideal man, this, you know, almost like, almost like you know, a women's romance books, the ideal guy or on the cover of a men's health magazine. It's the same guy with the same six-pack abs on every men's health cover. Uh, you know, no, we men come in all forms, all colors, all ages, skinny, fat, uh, you know, black, white, orange. We, we, we come in all kinds of packages. And so what I, I like you, I kind of hate us starting to squeeze men where you got to be like this, or you got to be red pill, or you got to be this way, or you got to be that way. Um, that, 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 you know, I, I don't like that, that approach. I, I, Again, we've got to find what works well for us, but mainly if we can just find ways to be more conscious, more in the moment, more connected, more embracing of all things about ourselves, more open to love. Uh, those, you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff I'd like to see men learning how to do and finding tribe to help them do that. Yeah, me too. Amen. Um, absolutely. I feel like coming out, of, uh, coming out of my first marriage that I read Codependency No More, Mm -hmm. And I, well, I was kind of mind blown to like, oh my, how codependent I had become uh, on my mom. I read that early on as well. Right. All, I'm like, oh my gosh, is there, is there a direct correlation between being a nice guy and codependency or is that, was that just the, my. The, no, they are, they are one in the same. One in the and same, right? They are. In fact, I made a very conscious decision when I was writing No More Mr. Nice Guy not to use the term codependency. Um, at the time I was writing No More Mr. Nice Guy, I started writing it almost 30 years ago. There, there was nothing for men in, in the whole codependency literature areas. Prior to that, it was all written for people who are in relationship with addicts and women. Women who love too much, uh, codependent no more, Pia Melody, Melody Beatty, people like yep. that. Yep. Good stuff, but nothing was addressed to men in particular. And I, I read all those books and, you know, the John Bradshaw books and, and, and nothing. I, I was seeing was a lot of men just like me and all the books we can go read really all written for women. Because, you know, as, as many publishers told me when I was trying to get my book published, men won't buy a self-help book. So we're just going to keep publishing the books for women. And uh, that's not true. Uh, my book's been out 20 years, and my royalty checks keep getting bigger every year. So men buy self-help books. That's awesome. Um, but so, so yeah, I, I decided not to use the word codependency in describing, because I wanted to see if I could des describe nice guy syndrome, especially as it showed up in men, without people, without me, number one, taking the shortcut and just calling it codependency, and number two, without people taking preconceived ideas of what codependency is. Oh, oh, that's just something you get if you're like married to an addict, or mm -hmm. that's just something you get if you're a woman and you know, can't stand up for yourself. I really wanted to address it. But yeah, nice guy syndrome is codependency. It's borrowed functioning. I only exist if there is somebody else, i.e. somebody to get my value from, somebody to take care of, somebody to fix, someone to keep me from feeling lonely. That's what codependency is. It's borrowed functioning. I, I, I can't be just alone within myself, have value just within myself, feel fulfilled just within myself. I'm dependent on another or others. and. Um, and maybe many of us are, are that way to some degree or another. And it just, it shows up in some very distinct ways in nice guys, in the caretaking, the pleasing, the fixing, you know, the picking women that we can fix them, um, avoidance of conflict, um, not living up to our potential, avoiding risk, letting fear control us. Just there's a lot of patterns that, that show up, especially in the men that, that I work with, and apparently you, you work w with quite a bit now as yep. well. Yeah, yeah. When, when we're talking about the topic of <laughs> avoiding confrontation and speaking our truth 
and uh, having those tough conversations maybe with your significant other, your spouse. Um, I hear that a lot as well. Like a better, I'd rather just not rock the boat. Yeah, know. go along to get along. Yeah, yeah, blah. What's what's? Are there certain? Someone were sitting in front of you. If I were sitting in front of you with this challenge, I'd be like, I just have a hard time really bringing these things up to my spouse. What's what's the beginning steps to actually make some progress in terms of actually being able to speak, like you said, and then have that mature conversation? Well, again, I'd say go go talk to some safe people first. Uh, and this is not at all uncommon what you're talking about. I would say for great many nice guys were conflict avoidant. And that's what a lot of guys will tell me coming in. Yeah, I, I avoid conflict. And I'm conflict avoidant. My, uh, my, my mother, bless her soul, 85 years old and um, still ticking. And um, she shared with at least two or three of the significant women in my life at some point or another, Bobby never did like conflict. And I think that was her way of saying, be nice to my, my, my boy. <laughs> Don't pick on my boy. And, um, and, and, I, and every time I would hear her say that, I'm thinking, no, I never did like conflict. And I'm thinking, who the fuck does? And there are people that like conflict. I, I seem to marry them. Um, but I never did, right? And I thought, if we can just, like, talk about this or if we can just find a solution, why do we need conflict? And um, so I, I always have been somewhat conflict avoidant. It's a piece I've had to work on. Because uh, you can't have integrity if you're avoiding conflict, if you're letting things build up, if you're not saying what's true to you, if you're not asking for what you want, if you have resentments that are growing, if you have needs that aren't getting met, you've got to be willing to risk rocking the boat. And, and again, practice this with safe people, uh, first off, because for most of us nice guys, when it comes to our partner, they don't feel safe because we're afraid they're going to get mad at us, they're going to reject us, they're going to quit having sex with us, they're going to leave us, whatever those fears are. And, and, and many of us do get with those kind of women that if you say anything that upsets them, there's all hell to pay. I'm, I've been through that. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't hang out with those kind of women anymore, but I, I used to. Um, and so practice it with somebody and keep it as simple as possible. I mean, try to avoid blame. And my uh, probably the easiest, simplest way I know is if something's bothering you, go to your partner and say, something's been bothering me. Are, are you available to talk? Are you available to listen? And just then just tell them what's bothering you. Most guys can tell me in two or three sentences what's bothering them. Well, you know, my wife never touches me anymore. I'd like her to touch me more. That's two sentences. That could have been one run, one long run-on sentence. Um, you know, uh, every time I try to talk with my wife, she blows up. All right. Most guys can tell me in one or two sentences what's bothering them, but when they try to go then to talk to their partner about it, they think they have to build a case and give examples and, you know, and, and have this ironclad argument. But it probably is as simple as to say, you know, I, I'm, I want to tell you, I got a problem. It, it you know, doesn't feel like you touch me as much as you used to. And I, I always like the way you touch me. And I'd, I'd like you to do that more. And most people can hear that. Now, there are some people, their shame will get triggered and they'll have a shame attack. They'll be, they'll, all they hear is they're bad, they're wrong, they don't do it right. And then they'll shame dump, i.e. make you feel bad for bringing that up and triggering their shame. And believe me, as a marriage therapist, I've seen that happen plenty of times. Um, and all I can really say is that if, if you practice doing that with your partner, don't attack them, don't accuse them, just say, something's been bothering me, or I've got a problem, can you help me? You know, I'd like us to have sex more often. Is there any way we can work together to make that happen? Bringing in the working together seems to really help. Um, you know, uh, I'd like us to eat healthier. Uh, um, you know, we're both gaining weight. I'd like us to eat healthier. Can we work together to make that happen? To, if we do that in just two or three sentences, following that two sentence rules, I call it, whatever needs to be said can be said best in two sentences or less. Do it with love. Do it as, let's be a team about it. If your partner continuously reacts negatively to you doing that, that's probably not a good person to be with. Right? And you might even have to have a conversation with them to say, I've got a problem. Anytime I bring up a problem with you, you overreact to it and you go off on me. Is there a way we can work on doing that differently? 
And, you know, that's, that's what I call masculine leadership. It's not like we're deciding everything that's going to be happen, everything we're going to do. It's, it's you setting a tone in the relationship for being open and, and honest and transparent and real and conscious and dealing with problems head on rather than letting them build up and blow up or come out in passive aggressive ways. That leadership so, is so key. I, uh, yeah, it is, and, and I'll, I'll say it again. I hate conflict, and so I'll, you know, I, I'm, 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 you know, stereotypical avoidant of it. But I found that if you just deal with it early on, not after it's built up. My, my, uh, my, my second wife, the one that the overreact to everything uh, woman. She, that's who I was married to when I wrote No More Mr. Nice Guy. And like I said, she got me into personal recovery, so I'm eternally grateful. You and I are talking because of her. Uh, she got me into recovery. Um, and she coined a phrase that I use in the book called victim pukes. And that's where the nice guy's been keeping it in, keeping it in, keeping it in, rehearsing stories in his head, gathering evidence, and, you know, yeah, yeah. and then finally something happens and it just all blows up. And it's, it's not pretty, you know. Well, we, because we nice guys are not experienced fighters, we're not fair fighters either. You know, we bitch slap and we hit below the belt and we're, we're, we're mean. <laughs> And then, then we have this shame attack. Oh, no, I'm such a terrible person. I just acted like my father. You know, and then we try to make it all better again. And I remember my, my ex would ask me from time to time after I'd have one of these victim pukes, as she named them, she'd say, um, how long have you been thinking about that? How long have you been feeling resentful and angry about that? And I'd, I'd think about it, you know, I don't know, six months maybe, a year. And she'd go, really? She goes, did it ever cross your mind to talk to me about it? I'd think about it and go, no, actually not, not once. <laughs> you know, it was in my head all the time, but I never thought, maybe I should actually tell her this. Yeah. And uh, so, yes, just telling them that is the much more loving thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think just looking for that win-win is so key. Uh, and I think it's, that win-win concept is tough sometimes for guys because it's, at least for me, having grown up playing sports so much, it was oftentimes I was looking to win. And there's a winner and a loser, yeah. And, and a loser. And, and yeah, if you right. and again, if you can if you can couch it as let's be a team in this. Can we can we? And and it, and it doesn't even have to be win win. But if everybody is cooperating together for something that seems like a valid goal, yeah. Uh, and, and then hopefully it is win win. Hopefully everybody feels good about where that goes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And kind of wrapping things up, where do you feel like, um, I mean, I think it's interesting, the older I get too, the more I see, yes, technology changes, the landscape of, of life and everything else changes, and yet behaviorally, we're all very similar to how our parents were versus how generations were before us. What, what do you see as a very kind of, what's the thing that men are probably being faced with or needing to focus on the most right now? You maybe have already said it during this conversation, but what do you feel like is the thing that men should be sticking their teeth into if they feel like they're un, unhealthy or need to grow? You know, I'll go back to tribe again. Um, you mentioned that maybe we're not all that different from our parents or grandparents, and that's probably true. And we're probably not all that different from our forefathers that walked the planet a million years ago hunting and gathering. And for a million and a half years, so anthropologists tell us, our ancestors wandered the planet, hunted and gathered, and lived in tribes. Everything was communal. Everything was shared, including sexual access. About 10,000 years ago, so a little tiny pinpoint in human history and evolution, so less than 10,000 10, years ago, our, some of our ancestors kind of disbanded from tribe and started not wandering and hunting and gathering and they started staying in one place and growing stuff and and kind of an ownership mentality began to evolve of instead of everything being communal I own this piece of land I own this cow I own this tree I own my this woman I own these kids and and that's what we now call patriarchy that's only existed for about less than, than 10,000 years even for a good bit of that time, the men still connected with men. They fought with each, you know, went to war with each other, you know, worked in the field together. It's probably, you know, you mentioned earlier the, the whole industrial revolution. You know, up to about 200 years ago or so, men worked together side by side. Boys grew up in that environment. And, and now, you know, especially after World War II, you know, we're highly industrialized now. Um, 
you know, we've, we've got nuclear, uh, we've, got, we've gone from extended family to nuclear family to, you know, half of all men under 35 now are single. Now, that's the first time that's happened in, in history. So we've become more and more and more individualized and isolated. And for both men and women, less and less connected from same-sex, same-gender companions and connection. And when I was uh, doing a lot of marriage therapy, one of the first things I'd tell every couple when they walked in my office was one of the best things they could do for their marriage was to have good same-sex friends. We've gotten too dependent on our intimate relationship to try to fill all of our needs and you know, fill all the voids and all the gaps, and, and, and that's why we end up resenting the hell out of each other. One person of the opposite sex cannot come fill all of our needs. We need tribe for that. So yeah, I'll, especially talking to men, I'll keep bringing it back to tribe and some form of masculine initiation. Learning how to get comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. Uh, we don't have that much anymore. Nowadays we're raised, everything's instantaneous. You know, if you want something, go get it on the internet. We can go watch Netflix. We can go play video games. We can go smoke dope. We can go do whatever it is and not have to feel anything. And um, I think to truly live up to our, our potential, to really show up, uh, uh, penetrate this planet, put a dent in the universe, we got to do it with tribe and we got to be comfortable with feeling uncomfortable and it takes initiation to do that. And we need, we need our brothers, we need our tribe to do it. Mm. Couldn't think of a better, better note to, to end it on. It's tribe, it's about uh, connecting, and I appreciate you taking some time to connect with me. And, Johnny, uh, thank so you, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, and I appreciate the work you're doing in the world and with men, and um, I, I count that there's one more, one more man out there working with men, making the world a better place. Yep, yep, and I, and I can't tell you how many times I've recommended your book, and men that have read it said it blew their minds. So it's the, the beautiful thing about what you've done. It's kind of cool to see how the ripple effect just keeps I like I like seeing it. Believe me, you know when, as I said, when many publishers said, "Oh, men won't buy a self-help book," and um, it's nice to know they were really wrong, and, and it's nice to know that the books had a big impact on the world. It makes me feel good. Yeah, so cool. Well, if people want to to learn more about you or get in touch or whatever the case, um, where can they find? They can find me at drglover.com on the internet. That's just D-R-G-L-O-V-E-R.com. If they Google No More Mr. Nice Guy, if they Google Robert Glover, I've got like the top 10 spaces on, on yep. both of those Google searches. So I'm pretty easy to find. Easy enough. Well, thank you again for sharing your, your wisdom and your insight with us. And I know so many guys are going to be, and women are going to be blessed by this. So thank you again. Thank you, Johnny. It was a good, a good time. Thank you. And I want to thank you so much for listening to The Johnny King Show. And hey, if you got something positive from this episode, please subscribe to the show, share it on your favorite social platform, and then tag me in it so I can say hi. It would also mean the world to me if you wrote a review of the show on Apple Podcasts because I read every single one. Do you feel like there's something I could be doing better? Awesome. I totally thrive on constructive feedback, and it's always welcome. So if you've got questions or concerns, you can always reach me via email at podcast at johnnyking.com. And then please follow me on Instagram at johnnyking, facebook.com backslash johnnykingmenscoach on my YouTube channel and LinkedIn. Thanks again for joining me. I've been Johnny King. You've been amazing. And we'll catch up with you next time. Take care.